I'm like, well, yeah. I, I'm pretty good at this. I can make, you know, brownies, cookies, croissants, lemon bars, various <laughs> things like that. And oh, that's like, nice. I can only make croissants. Uh. <laughs> wow, look at big wig croissant makers over there. Uh, look at the someone pronouncing it French. That was, that was. Uh, I guess that joke didn't necessarily make as much sense as it did. That was a burn on your overpronunciation of croissants. I thought it was a burn on the fact that I actually can't make croissants as admitted earlier in oh, this very okay. question. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast. I am Blue, and I am joined in person by Red. I'm looking right at a cat right now, and my life couldn't be better. Yeah, last time we were in the same place for one thing, and this time we're in the same place for a different thing. Yeah. Uh, right now, we're also joined by Cleo, who's nibbling at my desk mat right behind the microphone. So we'll, we'll see if we get some some bumps into the into the microphone yeah. over the next five minutes. She, but uh, She was fully rubbing her face on the mic earlier, so anything is possible. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, what a good cat. I'm distracted now. I'm looking at my adorable cat. So uh, we, we're we're going to go with not only you, not only indigo, but also basically like the entire green and also yellow. And like got Adam, a whole bunch of people, our whole like extended fencing gang plus plus some channel friends are going to the, uh, the Renaissance Fair this week and we're going to go see... Uh, the wonderful shows of our buddy Jacques Zewipper. Jacques Zewipper. Uh, our goal is to go see all of his shows, uh, like all six of them, <laughs> uh, and either fangirl or heckle, probably alternating between shows. What we do, uh, so we gotta keep him on his uh, on his toes. So that'll be that'll be a blast. Oh, I'm sure he'll love that. Yeah. Uh, Cleo drank from my water glass, so oh no. <laughs> so I don't feel comfortable being like, yeah, let's down the hatch. Oh, so, God, sorry. but I'm good. <clears throat> I just needed to get that out of my system so I can talk properly. Let's go. So also, you know, we're going to dress up in ridiculous costumes and, and walk around and have fun and, and oogle swords. And uh, I, I told um, Noir to bully me into buying an ocarina, so is that'll it, be a good time. Is it oogle or ogle? Or ogle? Ogle. Ogle? Oogle. No, no, okay. I'm, sticking, I'm sticking to this. <laughs> oh, we're so good. <laughs> Language <this>. is not <laughs> prescriptivist. <laughs> True that. But, uh, Some yeah. of the costumes more effort than others. Some of us may have simply bought a Renaissance shirt and called it a day, which I'll be pairing with my most comfortable Lucky Brand jeans. Uh, <laughs> but these are black. These are black, so people probably won't notice. Yeah, um, just look like slacks. Yeah, and then meanwhile, a lot of the other people on the crew are like, I've been burning the candle at both ends getting this witch costume done. You can at me. It's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see it in the background. Oh, where's Cleo going? She, she's gone. <laughs> she's left. That was quite a job. Cyan also uh, has gone extremely hard. She's making an entire, like, double-layered dress with, like, actual, like, boning channels sewn in. It's plastic. It's not It's not whalebone. Um, but Cyan made, like, a whole-ass dress. She made a poofy Renaissance shirt for me. I took my my old nine-euroist Venice flag that I got. <laughs> uh, it's made of nylon and, like, a millimeter thick. Um, and turned that into a half-shoulder cape. Uh, so Ezio can fight me because I have the cooler cape now. Oh, boy. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good time. It is. We're gonna have fun. Yeah. But, uh, that's not why we're here today. We all, <laughs> we're, we're here because we have a YouTube channel with videos that we put on it. What? Uh, Red, two weeks ago, we had, uh, a fun video from you, a trope talk on the Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. That's, a. Uh, a controversial one, but I, I think you had a very interesting angle on it. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, so the concept of the deus ex machina, it's one of those terms that kind of gets thrown around exclusively in a semi-negative context. You know, people will use it to describe plot twists they don't like, regardless of how much they um, technically fit any sort of <laughs> definition. Um, and uh, 
I had a, I had a lot of fun talking about it because uh, at the time that I was writing up this video, a uh, quick peek behind the curtain, uh, I was also storyboarding the part of the comic that I do, Aurora, that basically just resolved, which involves a literal deus ex machina. So as I was writing out my thoughts on how the trope works and what makes it work and what makes it not work, I was also internally being like, let's be really, really careful about this. <laughs> um, so that was a lot of fun. And I, I honestly, I'd sort of forgotten that the pages as I finished them would go up several days before the video did, because in my head I was like, the Deus Ex Machina video is going to go up and everyone's going to be like, oh, look at that. Look at what you just did in this thing. And instead people were like, wow, that worked pretty well. And then like a week later, the video hit and everyone was like, oh, this also works pretty well. And I'm like, okay, all right, I've dodged the bullet. But um, yeah, it's um, it's cool. I, I think that uh, people have a tendency to be like, you know, Aristotle being like, ah, the solution to the story must be internal to the story. And it's like, yeah, sometimes. But, you know, sometimes it's like everybody's dead. You know what would help? If Hercules showed up and punched a few ghosts <laughs> and fixed it. That would be nice. Um, yeah. yeah. Aristotle's thing is also very much, like, in his poetics, he's very clear that the most important thing in a story is the plot, mm. which I think we nowadays would agree is wrong mm. um, because it's like story structure and what happens and the narrative progression of events is king and everything else is secondary. Aristotle thinks characters are secondary, which Ooh. shows where his, his head's at. Um, well, but, you know, you know for, for us, the way that we understand story structure since, like, you know, the medieval period, character is a much stronger focus, especially since, like, the 18-1900s. So the idea of, like, you can kind of futz with the plot a little bit if it serves what's happening to the characters. And I think this more modern concept of, like, there is the plot and the story, and those are kind of different things, yeah. uh, I think is is a distinction that was absent from um, from ancient conceptions of narrative. Well, I've uh, classified stories according to three different categories before, with character-driven, story-driven, and theme-driven. Um, essentially being which of those things is the focus and which of those things essentially drives audience engagement. Um, and Aristotle clearly had a concept where it was like, it all has to be story-driven. It has to be about the progression of events from point A to point B and how they all tie into each other and make sense. Um, but more modern storytelling often focuses on character-driven storytelling. That's, I mean, you know, for, for as much as I will sass, that's George R. R. Martin's bread and butter, and he's really good at that. Uh, there's a reason why yeah. everyone agrees that the last two seasons of the show, when he stopped really having written the characters that far fell flat because the thing that was driving them forward was George R. R. Martin's incredibly good conception of who his characters are and what they will do in different circumstances. That's character-driven storytelling. And then uh, a lot of like dystopias and post-apocalyptic narratives are theme-driven storytelling where like not a lot happens and none of the characters are likable or relatable, but a lot of things mean stuff. <laughs> so there we go. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that deus ex machinas as a trope uh, are a little bit unexamined because mostly you'll just get people arguing technicalities because it'll be like, oh, you know, uh, the, uh, the giant eagles don't actually count. They don't actually count as deus ex machinas. And it's like, well, okay, let's unpack this. If, if people think they do, why do they think that? Why do they feel that way, even if they aren't? Uh, and it's like, well, they don't do anything. They don't do anything and they don't do anything. And then they show up and save the day. Even if we know they exist, it kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. Sorry, you? Cleo jumped in a box ah. uh, and knocked over a, a small little canvas painting that Cyan made at uh, one of her bridesmaids' weddings when Aww. she was a bridesmaid for 
the other person. Good job, Cleo. Not channel related, uh, so th there's no color associated with this character. <laughs> Excellent crime doing, my lass. Um, OSP anyway, goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a uh, it was a fun video, and I'm I'm glad people liked it. Uh, but you told me that you had a, a yeah, I, I had because one of the things that I really liked about your discussion was the concept of like luck in story and how that kind of cracks the 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 veil of believability and when mm. bad things happen that's just you know an understandable upping of stakes when things go wrong the diabolus ex machina the devil out of the machine yeah um but if someone finds a 20 on the street it's like that's that's unrealistic yeah. it's like how dare the story solve something that the characters should have had to work for i think there's an interesting comparison to be found in Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. because there are a lot of times when, you know, you're at the table and you're in some objectively kind of bullshitty situation, but you and the other players or the characters in, in the story manage to make it work because someone gets really lucky and rolls a nat 20. Yep. That, I think, is kind of an understood mechanism of why D&D &D is fun because you have those moments built in those seemingly deus ex machina moments where someone makes the impossible trick shot or summons a god to come and literally dope smack someone right in front of them yep. or you know whatever else it is but the reason that it seems so much more believable is not just that it's a story that's kind of improv and random and playing out but that right. you you see the die in front of you you have a, a, a tactile understanding of that d20 and the probability and the way that it works in a way that when you're dealing with a regular story, it's just like, oh, that, that came out of nowhere. It's like, in D&D, &D, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It was from the die, and that conversation between the die and the dungeon master will make those kinds of things happen. But when all the author, or when all the audience sees is whatever the author puts on the page, there's no understanding of what was happening behind, and then you can get things where it's like, oh, this is bullshit, whereas like in D&D, &D, it's like, that's that's the game is right there in those moments. Well, I also think that as a as a sort of corollary to that, while audiences may not like deus ex machinas, characters typically do. Which is why character-driven storytelling can do deus ex machinas without it feeling as disruptive, because we get so invested in the characters being happy and making it out of there okay, that when something conspires to let that happen, we're like, yes, I'll allow it. I'll allow anything that lets them be okay. Um, but in plot-driven storytelling, the kind that Aristotle thought was the only kind that counted, uh, when that happens, it's like Aristotle's such a bitch. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> he's the kind of people. He's the kind of person uh, to be like, oh, it's not a real book, you know. <laughs> so uh. much doesn't count if you don't have the paper in your hands. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah. So the idea that if it's plot-driven or theme-driven, and then a Deus Ex Machina comes in and saves the characters, that's unsatisfying, sure. But if it's the character-driven story, where the characters have worn themselves to the bone trying to get out of there, and then something is like, okay, I'll give you an extra boost. I'll, I'll make it work. You're like, yes, yeah. thank you. And in D&D, &D, the player is both writer and character. Yeah. And if you're like... I really, and audience. Yeah, and audience. Uh, so when the Deus Ex Machina hits and gets you out of there... Most players will not be like, no, that's bullshit. Put me back in there with the Trattarisk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can get him down with chip damage. No, none of that <laughs> shit, thank you. Um, so the idea that Deus Ex Machinas are always unsatisfying, to me, it, it kind of betrays a, a disconnect from the audience to the characters because it's like the character will take it. The character wants to get out of there okay. And if the Deus Ex Machina is coming at the end of something that's worn them down, you know, giant eagles again, like, oh, the, the eagles are a Deus Ex Machina. Sure, but like... Oh no, the story would have been much more satisfying if Sam and Frodo died on a rock buried in lava. That that would have really brought the whole thing home, you know? <laughs> Thematically, that would have just been fantastic. Yeah. It really would have told the message that Tolkien wanted it to tell. 
Anyway, yeah, enough salt that's... from me. The point is, as mentioned in the video, I think a lot of Deus Ex Machina's are just fine. I think it's a matter of execution rather than principle. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. I... There are some tropes that get that get icky on principle, and this is is not one of them. No. Sorry, you were saying. Well, I think that the the D and D parallel is actually very illuminating because it's like it really does highlight that if you're in the head of the character, you will take. The, yeah. the the bullshit and be like, yes, thank you. And it's not just like, oh, I'm lazy. I'm going to write that these characters get out of here and it's it's no big deal. It's like, you know, what what will you do? What situation will you set up so that the deus ex machina can, can actually bring it home? Like, mm. what extra things can you put into the story knowing that you do kind of have that? Anyway, you, you explained it in the <laughs> video. I just, I liked that point. Thank you, thank you. Um, but on the subject of, uh, of deus ex machinas that, that maybe never arrived or were there all along, uh, I recently, uh, uh, in an hour uh, from the time we're recording this, uh, <laughs> put up a video, History Resummarized the Roman Empire, which is is so exciting for me. I loved I loved doing this this whole series, so I will be uh, cold reading the audience reaction on this one, but that's okay because, strictly speaking, I've seen the audience reaction to each of these three videos when they first came out years ago, and now I'm just kind of schlepping them together. But Perfect. the first time I did one of these resummarized, I took the same audio, I, I cut it down, and I read the visuals, and I was like, I'm keeping to the original intent of the of, of the script. Then with Augustus, I had some audio problems that I couldn't get around, so I'm like, okay, I'll just re-record it. I will modify a couple things when there was something that I said that was just wrong, or if I can add an insightful detail here, but it's like 98% original script. And then this time I went back and I'm like, you know, <laughs> no. There it is. So I, I ended up, the, the outline of the script are the same, but I ended up rewriting the, the first and third parts pretty substantially. The, the middle part is essentially um, last year's Crisis of the Third Century video, which I made specifically for the intent for it to be in the middle of this Rome resummarize. Hey. But it just, it's so nice to see it come together. And like working on the channel over a long period of time, kind of in like in video intervals of, of 10 minutes, it's sometimes hard to see what it's building towards. And it's like, yeah, you have this playlist and you have all these videos that, you know, exist sequentially, but being able to like kind of go back um, and and just get all the bits that I wanted to get right or didn't have time or I made some silly goof or something and just make it, like, perfect. And even in yep. three years, I'll be like, oh, but what if? But <laughs> it's like having this kind of, like, definitive version of, like, this is the way the story's meant to be told. It works so much better when it's all together because it's such a big story that, you know, I, I my inclination is when I'm doing the videos to, to break it in parts and, and tell it, you know, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And, and try to get into that detail, but then you don't get the full picture in any one thing. And being able to do this, where it's like, the Roman Empire from 14 AD to 476, half an hour, let's go. It's it's so satisfying being able to like bring that home and make the videos feel like they're building to something greater than the sum of their parts. Yeah. I mean, this is the rabbit hole we've discussed in mm -hmm. uh, in improving older work because it starts with like I'll just I'll just tweak this one little thing and then <laughs> it, it just it just one more things its way into something completely new. Uh, but I think the video is really good. So uh, <laughs> in, in the same way that I've said that all the best adaptations treat the original like the first draft, yeah. I think that this is a, a similar structure in that you you treat the original videos as. Uh, take one and then you you polish everything up you rewrite things a little bit re-record it put it all out as a as a brand new more flowy version and also yeah. like half an hour long that does help because if it were just like this is the old video remastered it's like meh but it's yeah. like this is the old video remastered chained together with these other two videos so yeah, the flow that's... is easier to see it's like yes. yeah that, that's a rule that i set for myself very early on that if i was ever going to revisit a topic it would be either in more depth 
and more focused or zoomed way out mm -hmm. and consolidated. So I originally made a four-part series on Venice that was bad, hmm. but then when I went back and did it again later, it's like, okay, it's one video for the whole thing, and it's gonna be a lot better, and it was a lot better. And yeah. then it's the same principle for for these uh, for these re-summarized. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I, I get the fancy new visuals because some of the uh, the early maps for those Rome videos are, are, are quite bad mm -hmm. um, because I, I everything was way too saturated. Go back, you'll, you'll, you'll see it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I'm just so satisfied seeing the way that these build together and, and come into this lovely little thing. Cause now you can watch, you know, history resummarized Roman Republic, age of Augustus, Roman empire. And that's not the whole story. We still got Byzantines. Don't worry. We'll get there. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> you can, you can go now and see this basically like hour and a half mega feature now between these three videos. And it's like, there it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, and uh, uh, something else I wanted to say, and I completely forgot what it was. Uh oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, your approach <laughs> to this uh, came through because when I I've mentioned this, I think, but the uh, the full Trojan War video was your idea. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think at the time I was even bemoaning like, oh, the Iliad video is so old, and I don't want to redo it because I promised myself I wouldn't. But uh um, and, uh, you were like, well, how about, how about Trojan War speedrun any percent? And I was like, yes, yes. So, you're speaking my language. Yeah, so I, I got to just go through and be like, all right, this next 30 second chunk is going to be the entire Iliad and then we'll move on. And I love that even still of that, like, like that 30, 45 second chunk, 70% of that was still Iliad book one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like Iliad book one, Patroclus dies, Hector dies the end. Well, nothing else is important in the grand scheme of things. No. It's, I mean, that... One of the funniest things about the Iliad, and I don't want to completely derail this onto this other thing that I know a little bit more about, um, but it, it's got so much of, like, comic book crossover energy, because everyone getting name-dropped is important, Yeah. but most of them show up and then get a spear through the eye and are never spoken of again. Yep. And it's like, so it'd be like if, you know, the big climactic shot in Endgame had everyone get, like, introduced with a splash page and then get immediately murdered and then move on to the next character introduced. <laughs> uh, so it's like... Yeah, that's cool. I'm sure it's very important to those guys in whatever cities they're from and their long list of boats. But you know what? In the grand scheme of things, these guys don't matter. They are meat for the grinder. Like, anyway. imagine, like, Ant-Man walking out of the portal in Endgame and just get fucking clocked by the Thanos copter. Did you miss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, revenge for all those memes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But one of the things that I think really, really sold this video coming together, even more so than the Augustus and Roman Republic ones, was when I was able to take ideas that show up like in the, you know, 100s, you know, aughts, uh, first century, second century AD and plant that for, you know, two parts later where in the beginning I'm talking about, you know, Roman Britannia where they had a series of client kingdoms where before they fully conquered a place or before they imposed direct Roman rule, it was like, okay, this king rules under, you know, the permission of Rome and pays us a small tribute or whatever. And, you know, they have their military policy. They can pretty much, you know, do what they want internally, but externally, like they have to report to us. That idea of client kings was a very important method of, of Roman rule throughout the Republican period and the early empire, that essentially becomes inverted in what happens with Federati, where barbarians come in and say, you are going to let us come into your territory and have our, you know, internal policy and we won't mess with you, but, you know, this is where we're going to be. So having that, that pipeline between 
the concept of clan kingdoms, which is very important to early Roman history, and then leading into Federatian, like set up payoff, set up payoff at several parts in the video, um, was really cool to be able to, to string that along and make it make more sense than it would have if it's like, and the barbarians suddenly showed up. It's like, no, 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 they, they've been there the whole time. Yeah. They've been there the whole time. I promise you they knew they existed. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot to be said for like, you know, Roman, um, you know, uh, adoption of Roman culture in cities and spreading out that way. Um, so that like th this frontier is kind of always this permeable area, but doing able do being able to do that kind of stuff is what made me feel like this video was really like, yeah, here yeah. it is. It's, it's coming together. The ideas, the ideas flow, but, um, yeah. yeah, those were, those were ours. I'm excited to actually see what the audience reaction to this one is. Yeah. Um, hopefully it's good. People, people have liked the resummarized, uh, which I appreciate. They, they don't start like super big, but they, they have strong tails, which is nice. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it'll be cool. Yeah. We'll be babysitting yeah. the comments a little bit later today. Yeah, definitely. But um, um, other than that, um, next up, uh, we actually do have more Rome videos in the pipeline from me, and we will be joined in our next uh, podcast episode as a little uh, special announcement here. We've got Told in Stone, mm -hmm. Dr. Garrett Ryan uh, from the YouTube channel Told in Stone Thank will you. be uh, coming on the pod, um, and that will be very fun. I'm, I'm super excited for that uh, because it is the rare instance where I get to talk to someone who is so much more knowledgeable than me <laughs> and just bask. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, Teach me your own ways. Yeah, um, that's, uh, as far as announcements, we don't actually have a ton going on right now. It's just like us doing stuff in real life like Ren Fairs, but... Um, we do have some recommendations. We do have a recommendation, Ren. Yeah. Uh, hit us. <laughs> yes, well, the story, for context, is uh, basically a comment on the Deus Ex Machina video uh, referenced what I quickly discovered was the series Pitch Meeting. Uh, the joke being, wow, it's going to be really tough to find a modern example of Deus Ex Machina. Actually, it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. Um, I had seen Pitch Meeting's videos recommended to me. I'd never watched one because I cannot stand the thumbnails. They're the ones yeah. with the, the... Those big eyes. The hugely photoshopped eyes. It just, I was like, ooh, I don't like that. So every time it cut, popped up, I'd be like, whatever. But then I looked them up and I really like them. <laughs> Unfortunately, I love them. And now I feel silly for not having checked them out before. Yeah, Ryan George is very funny. He is, yeah. So uh, they, uh, uh, Pitch Meeting also has its own channel now. Uh, so if yeah. you want to subscribe to that, uh, that could be fun. Um, but yes, I've just been watching those almost nonstop. And uh, it's definitely beginning to infiltrate my speech patterns. So if you notice, don't <laughs> squeal. <laughs> it's like when I, um, whenever I watch a bunch of like zero punctuation, and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, the scripting's coming along really fast yeah, today. Exactly. It's like, oh no. <laughs> Well, also, ever since you've started watching Point Crow, I see a lot more, like... Oh, my God. P ...pagging, for instance. Oh, I, I barely say pagging. Don't you put that it's on me. It's more than zero. It's, like, three. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but, yes, that uh, that about covers us, I think. Uh, aside from additional burns, which I, I only say read. poggers ironically. Oh, that's a, that's a pipeline to using it unironically. No! I've seen it before. <laughs> Um, Just one hit, good sir. <laughs> Just um, one little Twitch chat meme. Anywho. Yeah, but uh... <laughs> uh, but yeah. So that's uh, yes. Yeah, so check out Pitch Meeting because they're really funny. I mean, I'm like the last person on earth to realize, so I'm sure you all know. But um... I've been had and called out. So let's move on to the, the Q and A portion of the podcast. Yes, additional callouts. Hello and welcome to the Q&A portion of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast where we answer your questions from Ask OS Pod on Discord. This first question comes from one of our lovely patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, support the channel, consider becoming a patron for a chance to have your question read first in a future episode. 
Uh, the amount that you two are dancing to me reading that makes me deeply afraid that someone's going to remix this portion of the podcast into like yeah. uh, my money don't jiggle jiggle kind of beat. Uh, we're, like not a, Im- we're not important enough for the Gregory Brothers treatment. I'm like an old uh, rubber hoses cartoon. I have to ba- like a bop to whatever's going on, Cuphead style. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of yeah. Patreon, uh, you all should go support Movie Struck oh, on God. Patreon. No, we're so Indigo's, <laughs> Have we crossed uh, the Morbius threshold yet or are we still a little uh, ways as away? As of recording, we're six people away from the you Morbius threshold. You know what to threshold. do, fam. You know what time it is, gang. <laughs> I appreciate well, all of the support, and also I did this to myself because I'm the one who made Morbius a stretch goal, but now that I actually might have to watch Morbius, I'm maybe... <laughs> I think, didn't we bully you into making Morbius a stretch goal? You suggested I, I add a second stretch goal, and I was like, oh, I could do Morbius, because people have asked for that. Uh, yeah, now see, here we are. Your own creation. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys but, uh, for... Yeah, I do a Patreon for Movies Track, and it's very close to that goal, so thank you to everyone who supported so far. Uh, but we've got questions from patrons for y'all, so... This first one comes from Lenorian. To blue mostly, if one were doing a quick two days of tourism in both Rome and Florence, what besides the Duomo should they make sure they see? Okay. Excellent. Um, I figured, you know, we've had Rome. We should talk about Rome. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, The thing with Rome is if you, uh, I'm assuming two days each. If you're doing one day in Rome and one day in Florence, God help you. Um, Just just walk and see what you see. Uh, (laughs) Because there's no way, yeah. Um, Let's assume you got two days in each. If you want to do the Vatican Museum, that is a day. That is fully a day. There is so much shit. It's 11 miles of corridors inside a half a square mile parcel of land. Cleo, stop eating plastic. She's just stepping on plastic. Okay. Um, So if you want to do the Vatican Museum, it is great. It will take up an entire day. I would recommend you got to go to the Pantheon, go inside that dome. Go into the Colosseum if you want, but really go into the Roman Forum because you can just walk around in the ruins. You get the ticket for the Roman Forum the same place you get the ticket for the Colosseum, and it's it's great. You're also going to want to go to the Arapacus, which is kind of near the Vatican. It's it's up in the Campus Martius. It's kind of along the river. Um, that's pretty sweet. They opened up the Mausoleum of Augustus, but like, eh. Um, genuinely, just walk around, see what you see, hit the Pantheon. Hit the Roman Forum, and then anything else is like, you know, you'll probably want to go see Cleo. She's just stepping on plastic. God. Nobody panic. Uh, and then, and then, yeah. Uh, for Florence, um, Duomo is great. Again, it's very small. You can walk around. Try to see the churches. You can go to Santa Croce. You can go to um, San Lorenzo. The Medici chapel's in there, and the, the Medici mausoleum inside San Lorenzo is gorgeous. Um, it's actually still under construction, I think, which is quite fun. Um, down by the Pitti Palace across the river, the Boboli Gardens are beautiful. Um, go to the Academia in the morning if you want to see the David. No one's there. The Uffizi is not a day. You will want to buy tickets in advance. Um, it's good for a few hours if you really like the art. Um, but if you're not into, like, Renaissance Florentine art, there's nothing there for you. Um, genuinely, with, with those cities, with, with just two days, just walk around see what you find. Maybe watch like a Rick Steves video for more inspiration, Mm. but um, hit the churches in Florence and then do the academia if you want, because that's good. Bridges are fun. And then um, you're going to want to do the forum in Rome and the Pantheon and then maybe the Arapacus too. Perfect. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) The blue spark notes of where to go (laughs) when in Rome. 
I think we had a uh, version of this question earlier, and I, I forgot the Pantheon in that answer, and I felt so stupid. <laughs> Every once in a while, we got to re-up it just to give you the chance to, like, yeah. much like doing the re-summarize, to give you the opportunity to exactly. draw some more Exactly. <laughs> upgrade, Mike, yeah. If you're in Rome, no, not for two days, never mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we'll move on to another question. This one comes from Willard LH, parentheses, gayer this time. Uh, to all, what do you think your overall cooking skills are? Do you have a recipe that is considered your signature dish? Are we counting baking? Because, sure. Let's. Yeah. Let's. Yes, because yeah. uh, I am, I'd say, quite good at baking. Um, I, I have a head start. My dad had me help him out in the kitchen at home from a very early age called me a sous chef. I thought it was extremely cute. I, yeah. <laughs> well, I took it extremely seriously at the time. In hindsight, I think it was extremely cute. Um, so baking, I've, I've pretty much got a handle on. There are very few things I've ever baked that have actually, like, gone catastrophically wrong. My main problem is I hate that I have to refrigerate certain things before I bake them. The last two times I've made croissants, I've uh, fucked them up because we are supposed to chill them almost, like, 24 hours between folds. <laughs> But I don't have that kind of patience, no. so I just bake them straight, and all the butter leaks out, and they end up <laughs> frying in about half an inch of butter, oh, which no. is honestly a win-win. They just look weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, baking, I'm quite good at. Cooking, I am only starting to become even slightly confident at, and the reason is I hate dealing with raw meat, but I also oh. am not vegetarian and cannot <laughs> just, uh, cannot do that to myself. So basically, it's like, all right, do I want to bake something, or do I want to... I don't know, order food. Um, yeah. I recently cooked chicken for the first time, uh, and I even seasoned it. Imagine that. Um, but I was very, like, I, I had, like, the meat thermometer, like, it has to get over 160 on the inside or I'm in <laughs> trouble. Um, so cooking, meh. Baking, I think, I think pretty good. Yeah, that's that's accurate. I Cyan will, will tell me I am a better cook than I think I am, and that is fair, but I don't think I'm a very good cook. Um, I think I am an excellent sous chef. I'm really good at like stir that, do that, do this, and just like kind of like helping with the maintenance of stuff. Like I can I can chop the things great while the the actual chef is is working on the roux. Um, but uh, baking, I I think I'm a little better at. I, I hate making a mess, so baking is also like kind of tough for me because yeah. like there's flour everywhere. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. stuff on the, the the cookbook now. The hardest part of baking um, for me is that I personally hate the texture of like a gritty substance yeah. on something dry so like graphite on rough paper i also hate uh sorry, charcoal on rough paper same problem flour on crusty bread makes me want to crawl out of my own skin <laughs> other than that baking is super easy barely an inconvenience yeah. <laughs> but uh the uh the thing is i thought i was hotter shit at baking than i was and then i started watching a lot of great british bake-off and i was like mm. oh baking has depths of ridiculous levels of finickiness yes that i don't want to plumb <laughs> because it's like these are all people who are really good at what they do, and then it's like, I need you to make this Victorian dessert that involves inflating the pastry into a perfect sphere and then baking it at exactly the right temperature. And then it'll be like, well, I baked mine, and then it cracked, and they're like, ah, zero points. So I'm like, well, yeah. I, I'm pretty good at this. I can make, you know, brownies, cookies, croissants, lemon bars, various <laughs> things like that. And oh, that's like, nice. I can only make croissants. Uh. 
<laughs> wow, look at big wig croissant makers over there. Uh, look at the someone pronouncing it French. That was, that was. Uh, I guess that joke didn't necessarily make as much sense as it did. That was a burn on your overpronunciation of croissants. I thought it was a burn on the fact that I actually can't make croissants as admitted earlier in oh, this very okay. question. But that makes uh, sense too. Never mind, this joke had too many layers and it collapsed on Just itself. like croissants! Just ah! like croissants, yeah. Um, anyway. I, I'm good at pasta. I'm actually quite oh, good at pasta. Yeah. My secret is that I just keep eating it until it's al dente. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I'll, I'll yeah. eat pasta way too early and just, like, spit it out into the sink and that's fine. But it's like, <laughs> I, I'm always taking little nibbles and then it, as soon as it's there, boom, out of the water. Yeah. Just have, like, there a sixth sense for that. I'm not really much, like, I do bake, um, but if I don't have a very specific recipe, like, there's no... I like to improvise, so I think I I, I tend to be more of a cook, uh, and I like cooking. I find it kind of relaxing. I don't know if I'm like notably good at it, but uh, I've managed to feed myself for the last couple of years, so I'm going to consider it a win. Um, <laughs> Heck yeah! And probably oh, the signature cook. recipe thing that was yes. part of the question, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, I have a brownie recipe that I actually put on our Instagram a while back, uh, where basically it was the result of not liking making a mess and wanting to improve the efficiency because I really like it when I only have to wash like a couple things at a time. Uh, now the brownie recipe I use involves um, melting butter into cream, pouring that over chopped up chocolate, uh, making basically a, uh, a ganache out of that, and then starting to add the other ingredients to it, starting with sugar and then eggs, flour, cocoa powder, etc, etc. Um, I concluded that if you add the sugar to the cream and butter, that's basically the process by which you make caramel. Like, the ratios mm. are different, but that's, you know, I know that that's a way that yeah. that can work. And it immediately, it dissolves the sugar, which means you don't get little grainy bits. You get a much smoother texture. And if you take it close to caramel, which I have at times done, uh, you end up with an extremely smooth brownie batter with a very fudgy texture. The only downside is if you heat it up that much and then you pour it over the chocolate, it... I learned this uh, a couple times. I, I couldn't figure out what was happening. Basically, the chocolate curdles. It doesn't actually ruin the batch. If you continue mixing it, it'll eventually smooth out. But if you pour a substance that hot, like 240 degrees Fahrenheit, over chocolate, it melts, but it also, like, seizes in a really weird way. Um, it's still workable, but uh, it's best to let that cool off a little bit I before like, you pour it over. I feel like I've seen that in a video by Anne Reardon on how to cook that. Oh. Yeah. Well, you can make melted chocolate seize by uh, pour by adding even the tiniest drop of water. Yeah, uh, that's which different. Is, it's a little different. The thing is, chocolate is really, really weirdly complex. It's technically a wax, I think. Yeah. And it has like six different crystalline arrangements, which is why tempering it is such a pain in the butt, because it's like, you want arrangement number five, which means if you get it too hot, it goes into arrangement six instead. It's a mess, but um, basically that that's kind of my signature brownie recipe. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and if you have a like a stand mixer, it's really easy because you can just kind of yeah. make the whole thing in there, pour it into the pan, bake it, comes out very smooth. You can add chocolate chips or little M and M's on the top. It's great. Yeah. What about you guys? <laughs> oh, I Blue, feel like we answered any... pasta. I don't pasta. Know. <laughs> yeah. Mine's probably uh, the like most unique recipe is probably the uh my dad's cauliflower soup which i think i've talked about in this podcast before i recall the cauliflower yeah. soup story <laughs> yep you know you get your onions and your garlic olive oil let that all mingle in the bottom of whatever size pot you're making the soup in and you just layer cauliflower parsley um tomatoes breadcrumbs if you're fancy and then just fill it with water and let it boil together for however long um i usually do an hour perfect. or so but yeah i i my biggest problem with cooking is that i'm bad at like eyeballing measurements and things and i never really can mentally be like this is going to be enough food so i make far too much of everything every time i cook Ooh. which is 
fine, except I, you know, I'm one person, so I have a lot of leftovers hanging about. Um, but other than that, pastas too. You know, cut up yeah. some cherry tomatoes, make some gravy or something. It's nice. the easy thing to do. Uh, but we'll move on to another question. This one comes from Ross Canada. Uh, to Red, how do you deal with designing chibi versions of characters with very popular yet inaccurate pop culture looks? Thanks, Marvel's Thor and Loki, for example. So characters oh. that already have like a very popular conception of how they appear. How do you go about designing those for your uh, videos? Well, normally I... Either if they have a physical description in the text, I'll try and follow that as closely as possible. Or I will look up, like, 18th century or earlier, or 19th century or earlier <laughs> illustrations. The thing is, those aren't always accurate. The version of Loki I have is based on some, like, 1800s, like, prints, which are pretty easy to find. He's got the very sort of fiery, back-swept orange hair in those. And that was around the time when the prevailing theory was that he was a, like, a fire spirit of some kind. Uh, just the etymological argument had reached that point, but hadn't yet gone beyond to be like, actually, that that doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, so that's kind of where it starts. Um, I kind of have personal design sensibilities that don't really line up with either the accurate source material or the pop culture one. I tend to think that a lot of characters are designed in really boring ways. Uh, my number one complaint of every production of Midsummer Night's Dream I've ever seen is that all the fairies look just like guys, just like people. <laughs> um, like, they try and make them look kind of ethereal and cool sometimes, but they'll be like, ah, oh, we slapped horns on this guy, and he's wearing furry pants. Look at that, he's a satyr now. And it's like, ooh, guys. <laughs> guys, you could do so much more crazy stuff with this. Um, when we still had Patreon open for, like, chibi commissions, uh, I <laughs> a couple times people were like, hey, can you draw this angel from Supernatural? And I'm like, heck yeah, let me look up what this guy looks like. It's just a fucking guy. He's just a guy. He doesn't look at all interesting. So that that's my pet peeve. I have like personal ideas of what I think are interesting design elements to add to supernatural beings to make them look weirder. Uh, if you're curious, I have an awful lot of gods running around in the comic I do <laughs> uh, and like spirits and stuff. And they kind of tie into a lot of that. Uh, I designed a forest god that had like horns that were basically tree branches. Just that kind of thing. It's not a complicated concept, but I think that if you have a like a a being that represents something, you can incorporate that thing into their appearance in unusual ways, rather than just like we're gonna put pointy ears on him. He's an elf. We're done now. That's good. This isn't like a dunk. I haven't even watched Rings of Power, but I have seen like some stuff be like these ancient ethereal beings look just kind of like people in Abercrombie and Fitch like oh. leftovers. So. Um, so when it comes to things that have inaccurate modern pop culture representations, usually what I do is I search, like, that character's name and then, like, illustration or print or something like that. And I'll scroll past all the Marvel and all the, like, supernatural results. And then I'll get to, like, okay, this is from an illustrated version of, like, the prose edda that, you know, came out in, like, the 1800s. And it looks all right. It, it looks, you know, it's not original but in a lot of these cases yeah. that's all you can really get this is also something i learned when i was doing some some research i was trying to find a painting of of two deities uh and when i looked up mars and venus i found lots of beautiful renaissance and baroque art and when i looked up um aries and aphrodite i found fan art and a lot of nsfw stuff oh yeah um, oh yeah <laughs> which is frankly I'm, I'm shocked that the difference in name accounts for that much, but, like, the shift back towards the Greek names is, like, 1900s and, and on. So I was like, yeah, I guess that does make sense. So I'm just getting mm -hmm. fan art of, 
of Hades the Game and inappropriate fan art of Hades the Game. Yeah, I'm surprised Mars and, <laughs> and Venus wasn't giving you a bunch of Sailor Moon fan art, frankly, because as soon as he said it, I'm like, oh, yep, that'll get it. That's what I was <laughs> thinking, do too. It. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe I, mean, I didn't scroll far enough. <laughs> I think that, it, well, Mars and Venus would also get you planets, first of all, so there are ways to refine the search to make that not an issue. Um, but yeah, I tend to try and start with, like, is there any kind of source that I can work from that isn't the modern redesign? And then I, I sort of go from there. Try and put together something that I personally like. So, like, the designs for Freya and Freya in the uh, in the old Edda videos are, like... I mean, I made them elves, for God's sake. I basically made it so that the Aesir have, like, little human rounded ears, and then everybody else gets pointy elf ears. And that's me. That's not accurate to the 1800s. <laughs> Why the fuck would that be? As far as I can tell, Tolkien is the one who originated the leaf-shaped ears concept. Uh, but I just liked it. I oh my it god, sense. they're leaf Is that why they're pointy? Yeah. I saw a few people be like, he didn't specify what leaves, you guys, which led to some horrifying fan Oh my god. We don't gotta get into that right now. But the point is, like, y you know, I I take liberties a lot of the time. I mean, the I like, all the Olympian gods being technicolor, that's nowhere. Like, that's me. I like that. I think it makes more sense to make them seem kind of like these superhuman... Beings you of... can make the argument that comes from Disney Hercules. Oh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't... <laughs> I mean, you're, you're right, but also... No, yeah, you're color coding right. the Greek gods is a, a not common touch point, but it's a way to differentiate them that's popped up in a few different yes. media sources at this point, including yeah. Yeah, OSP. Absolutely. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, like... But your color associations are, are distinct to you. What I mean yeah. is that, like, the Greek gods, as they were represented in... Um, Greek mythology and art were, you know, human looking. Yeah. Uh, there were actually arguments about this. There's a lot of like, was it Cicero who had like uh, on the nature of gods and he yeah. has this whole thing about like, how do we know what the gods look like? What, how can we identify that this one is <laughs> Apollo and this one is uh, Hephaestus? And it's like, well, Hephaestus is kind of easier, but I'm um, like, did he try to fuck me? It's probably Apollo. 50, <laughs> 50 on that. There's a bunch of options. Um, and it ends up being, you know, it's, I sort of draw on the source and then I, I I add my own flavor and I don't really know how to answer that question because it's the old where do your ideas come from thing. Um, my brain, next question. Yeah, my, my brain spits them out. Yep. And I, uh, I do fun stuff with it. So let's go. Yeah, this next question comes from Organic Chocolate Milk. To all, my dad once said to me that the music you listen to as a teenager stays with you forever. Granted, I was 13 and in my nightcore phase, but I discovered my favorite genre of music because of a bad, because of bad nightcore covers. Would you say your taste in music has evolved since you were a teen, or is my dad right? So, has your taste in music changed much since you were a wee lad and lass? Or, uh... It's expanded, but yeah. in very, very consistent directions. <laughs> um... I mean, I've said for years that the only requirement I have for music that I like is good beat, strong electric guitar. Um, and even that's a little bit negotiable. Strong guitar, really. Um, so mm. I, when we did the two million video, I saw people like, wow, Nightwish, that takes me back. And I'm like, I never left. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who thinks that anyone who thinks that orchestral rock isn't the coolest thing ever is lying to themselves and to you. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, my exposure to music before I was a teen was, like, my parents, like, the Beatles and a lot of, like, filk parodies and uh, They Might Be Giants. So as soon as I discovered 
Linkin Park, Danny Phantom AMVs. Oh, man. Oh, God. I was lost, For, for me, it was, I found Numb through a Linkin Park Starscream AMV. Ooh. I don't even know why. And Everyone then after that, a, it was all the Naruto ones. Yeah. Everyone I don't like know why the Starscream one was what range. my friend Emery found first. <laughs> Everyone of, like, a certain age range has the moment where they first heard Linkin Park's Numb, like, burned into their brains. I think mine was just, like, a local radio station, but... <laughs> There's just like I a certain era saw, where there was a moment where like, yes, at it. some point as a youth, you would counter the song Numb by Linkin Park and yeah. you just have to like permanently remember that. Um, yeah. No, I think similar to Red, like my taste in music hasn't necessarily changed, but it's evolved a bit. Um, I was a big into the uh, ever classic My Chemical Romance and similar associated mm-hmm. bands in like high school and mm-hmm. middle school. Um, and while I think that maybe I listen to a wider range of music now, uh, I got more love for R&B and soul and, um, been listening to a lot more oldies, which is probably an influence from Papa Richie, but you know, that's okay. My dad, he's out there. Um, <laughs> uh, the, you know, if you have a bad day and you'd be in your feels, it never hurts to go back to the Black Parade. Um, so I, I listen think to more it, Crush 40 now, but that's Sonic's <laughs> fault. Yeah. I feel like, you know, music you listen to as a teen, if you like something, you're probably still going to like it unless something about it or you really changes. So it's not um, strange to still be listening to stuff you liked as a teen because you liked it then. You probably still like it now. But I do think that mu- you have a, a tendency to expand your tastes or at least listen to more bands and things as you get older and get exposed to more music because that's just how mm-hmm. growing up and having more opportunity to consume media generally works yeah that sounds about right yeah as a, as a teenager i was very much into like the the lincoln park zone and <laughs> and adjacent bands of of similar uh or slightly lesser um like emo i'm 14 and this is deepness that came up a lot recently in my life Shine no, down. yeah yeah i don't know yeah. why um, but, you know what? Let me just pull up my iTunes right this yeah, minute. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, while got. you're doing that, of of course, recently the 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 meme has been that I've I've pivoted quite strongly to orchestral video game OSTs. Yeah. Because I just I, I I love listening to them. It's the only kind of music I can listen to while I work. Because if there are words in us, I I can't I can't focus. It's what's my focus, and I'm terrible. Um, <laughs> but with just like sounds and no 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 talking or singing, mm, we're good. So I forgot Breaking Benjamin. That's oh a yeah, days grace. which was also in Halo for some reason. Ah, of yeah. course. Oh yeah. Well, then there's you God. know the songs that were just on like Tony Hawk Pro Skater Two or something. You're like, yeah, these are permanently yeah. burned in my memory. <laughs> yeah, all, spent all of the uh, hours all, listening to them. Yeah, all the jukebox soundtracks yeah. that we were used to in our in our, our youth in video Bring games and TV and movies. Bring back the jukebox musical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give it back to me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. and the. And inexplicably, alongside everything else, take a hint from the Victorious show. Oh my god. Which I got... Not even uh, Chicago, the one-woman musical. <laughs> what? No, That lives what? in my head permanently. Yeah, there was an episode... Oh. This is not really relevant to the question. There was an episode where uh, Tori's... Victoria's sister did a one-woman show called... I think it was just like a one-woman version of Chicago or something. But uh, there's a song in which she says... I think I'll call this town Chicago. And that's, oh. I didn't watch the episode, but I saw that clip and it's lived in my head ever since like. <laughs> that's very funny. I've never watched Victorious, uh, but I have watched all like 13 hours of the Quentin Reviews. Mm. Like, what, 17 hours now? Uh, Quentin Reviews, Victorious and affiliated stuff. Um, anyway, I didn't know what Victorious was. I just knew the song was a banger. So I acquired it. And 
then years later it turned up in the Quinton Reviews video and I was like, that's where that fucking thing is from. That's why it has those two people yeah. on the album. That makes sense. This question is now outside the purview of my knowledge. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like we'll, we'll bring it back into uh, to Blue's knowledge because this next question comes from Do Milk. I'm currently homesick and my question is, what do you do on sick days? Do you make chicken noodle soup, etc.? What What's your go-to strategy? So when you're homesick, what do you like to, to do to recover? I uh, I like to make the biggest pot of ginger tea that I possibly can, mm-hmm. and as as soon as it's done, I make another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I keep the tea flowing. I order a big bowl of ramen. Uh, I curl up on the couch with the all MST3K all the time channel. Okay. Oh, uh, and I just kind of wait until my body stops betraying me. Yeah, I kind of similarly. Uh, I go for a big bowl of soup, cauliflower soup if I have it. Bringing it bringing it back course, around um tea this is probably when i could the second the t- second most uh this is the time i consume the second most amount of tea uh next to recording rolling with difficulty yeah <laughs> oh, okay. uh, yeah and um i would like when i'm sick to actually watch something that i've seen before i don't usually like to rewatch media unless i have a reason to because i'd like to be consuming new things all the time i think that that gives me I, I just this is my job i just consume media constantly so it feels right that i'm trying new shows all the time but when i'm sick i'm like i'm just gonna watch parks and rec for like the eight thousandth time over Hell it feels yeah. right you know it's comfort food it's, it's cozy <laughs> um so yeah i think we're all very similar minds of just like get some hot liquid hunker down chill <laughs> Yeah, for yeah. me, I, I like to play video games that I've played before. Because even in general, I I don't I I don't like to to, to do new things. I mean, sometimes <laughs> I do, but it's like if I can play or watch something that I know I like, why wouldn't I? You two mm. together are a nightmare for me specifically trying to recommend media to you. Oh yeah, because you're like absolutely not, and Indigo is like. Oh, sorry, my cue for new things that I need to do for work as a responsible adult This week is alone, I watched three long. seasons of TV. Uh, Abbott Elementary slaps. Everyone should watch it. It's really good. Um, and also the two most recent seasons of Tuca and Birdie. Very good. But yes, no. This is no. my own <laughs> torment. I keep trying to get people to watch Leverage now. I've given up on Reboot for my immediate friend group, but Leverage is still... I still hold out hope. And people are like, Someday. oh, yeah, I'll, I'll add it to the list, but I can't promise anything. I read, though, to your credit, like, like five different people when we were <laughs> at ShyCon were like, hey, I started watching Reboot on your recommendation. Yes. I'm like, oh, my God, you do exist. You, I know it. <laughs> I knew they were out there. I just don't know any of them in real life. Also, uh, <laughs> in the subject of, like, being out sick, I recently got my uh, the new COVID booster, and I was like, this is going to lay me out for 24 hours. I'm going to, like, block that out. But I got cocky. It had been a while since my last booster, so I forgot. It gives me a 12-hour grace period of no side effects. Mm. And then they all start hitting, like, one after the other. So I was, like, chilling. I was getting work done. And then around 11.30 at night, I was like, my legs really hurt for some reason. Ah, oh, <laughs> fuck, it started. Oh, uh, dang it. <laughs> and then the entire next day, it was like, okay, it's tea and lying on the floor a little bit. Yeah, when... <laughs> When, when I got COVID in the spring, I was in that, like, first wave of, like, wait a minute, rebound cases are a thing, oh no. So the first time I'm like, I'm going to be gentle, like, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna watch some TV, like, I'll watch season four of She-Ra finally, I'll, I'll do this, I'll be gentle, I'm going to, and then the second time I'm like, fuck you, and I just worked the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But normally it's like, be gentle, but after a while it's like, I'm sick of this. Yeah. Um, because that's how, like, I spite being sick by being productive anyway. Not because I feel like I need to tie my worth 
to productivity, but it's, but it's like boring otherwise. This makes me feel powerful that I have beaten you. <laughs> yes. I've bested you in single combat and now you must relent. <laughs> Battle in the center of the mind. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, well we have time for I think one more question here before we wrap it up. So Red, as usual, this is your five minute warning uh, for the outro. <laughs> this comes from PT Braunschweig. What is your zombie survival plan? Oh, Oh, I'm killing myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us are planning on outliving the zombie apocalypse. The world of zombie apocalypses. Let me just, okay, let me just go off on this a little bit. I fucking hate zombie apocalypses. I hate them so much because the world that they create is absolutely hopeless long term. And that bums me right out. It's like, I, we've been through some shit in the last few years, all right? And I know about, like, finding, you know, joy in bright moments, but there's limits, okay? In the same way that you have stories where it's like, hope is the most important thing, but you won't know that from how we treat the characters that express hopeful feelings. It's like, all right, you're just doing lip service to a basic concept that you clearly don't understand, because, like, hope is important, but I bet if I kill everybody who hoped that things would get better, that will make my point more poignant or something. This, This is why I... The Last of Us Part 1 is one of my favorite games probably mm-hmm. ever. I will never play The Last of Us Part 2 because I, I have a, a vague understanding of what happens and I I, I choose not to engage with it. Yep. It would not do nice things to my mental state. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave that be. Yep. I'm just gonna not not touch it. And that's you know, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I read through the book version of World War Z a couple times, and it is it's tough because the first third of it is the nightmare scenario, and then after that it's slow rebuilding. And it was written by someone who has basically the exact same opinion as I do, which is zombie apocalypses are terrifying and sad. Uh, and he basically, he's like, all right, I'm going to give myself the parameters of basically a classic George Romero, like no cheating, no fun little, oh, we can get rid of them this way. We can fertilize our fields with them, all that shit. He's like, no, we're going to give the nightmare scenario and then we're going to figure out what to do. Um, and it's a pretty cathartic read uh, because what they end up rebuilding at the end is essentially a civilization where it's like the zombie apocalypse is kind of endemic like it's it's out there and we can't really fully get rid of it but we have it manageable we sort of know what to do about it there's only so much we can do but we are starting to rebuild large-scale civilization and i thought okay yeah yeah i don't mind that but most zombie apocalypse stories don't do that what they do is they whittle humanity down to like we're just gonna stay on this one base but if anyone ever leaves any of these gates open we're all fucked and it's like okay So it's not a matter of if you'll survive or if you'll get bitten, but when you're all going to die horribly. So the zombie apocalypse survival plan is find a different genre because they're not designed (laughs) to be survivable. They are allergic to happy outcomes. It has to be bittersweet. It has to be, oh, everyone else is dead, but like the kid and the pregnant woman have managed to make it to the military base where they're all holding out and it'll be fine until... You know, it's not. <laughs> the survival strategy is just go complain to the author. And yeah. be like, oh, you're a hack. Try you something ass. new. Exactly. Yeah. Like, zombie apocalypses are so annoying. I actually, I I just used this as an example in a trope talk I um, actually finished recently. How crazy is that? Uh, but we won't see it for another couple months. Uh, of essentially when stories pay lip service to the concept of hope and then smack you in the face for believing in it, the what if episode about what if zombies. Uh, Marvel's what if, Marvel's to what if, yes. When they have like, oh, you know, we got the Mind Stone and we're going to get to Wakanda and then we're going to we're gonna fix everything and they pan over to Wakanda and everyone inside the dome is a zombie and zombie Thanos is there and it's like, fuck you, Spider-Man, for believing in hope. <laughs> and it's like, 
And then the episode ends! And I guess they reveal later that Black Widow is the only human left alive in that entire planet. It's like, good work, team. Everything you did was pointless. So, uh, yeah. The good thing is, zombie apocalypses aren't real and can't happen that way. Because, God, fuck that. Uh, so we don't have a zombie apocalypse survival plan because but, zombie I mean, apocalypses are inherently rigged games that it, are designed to make you miserable. Yeah, anyone who is living in so central a part of a society to be in a city or a place with easily accessible internet, if you're listening to this podcast, you're fucked, buddy. Yep. You're done. As soon as that happens, oh, yeah. it's game over. There it's game. game. Any like city is going to collapse. Sit on the roof and be like, well, I guess I chose to live in a city. <laughs> My general thought for that's new york yeah you get as high up as possible you stay there but like if you've ever like planned out a camping trip you'll be like okay so i really can't go more than like seven hours without food so your zombie apocalypse survival plan had better account for that and then you'll starve it's gonna be boring yeah it's gonna be boring or it's going to be very very bad for a little while and then it's not going to be a problem anymore yeah sorry to the to the the lovely person who asked this question it's just that we (laughs) i guess this is where the barrel of spice was hiding this episode because we (laughs) For a long time, I've just, like, hated this concept. Zombie apocalypses are lazy from an authorial perspective. And you can tell, because only World War Z, written by someone who's actively trying to find a way to beat the zombie apocalypse, is an actually interesting zombie apocalypse story. And that's why everyone hated the movie version that undercut that and kind of was like, anything that you think will work is going to not work because of bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just, it it kind of all comes across as, like, it's it's lazy hand of the author diabolus ex machina shit. It, yeah. It's just, like, anything that you think is going to work is going to fail. Because it has to. The only zombie apocalypse story that I genuinely liked was one that had an actual, like, win condition. Because uh, most, like, classic zombie apocalypses don't do that. Once you, it's like, oh, you're a zombie, so you're dead, and then your body's falling apart. Like, even if you cure that, the person's dead. They're still dead. Yes. Um... <laughs> mm-hmm. But there's a there's a played very straight zombie apocalypse story in the Sonic IDW comics, oh the uh, the Zombot thing, where oh it's like God. a it's a nanite thing, uh, and there's a way to cure it. There are various ways to cure it. Obviously, use the Chaos Emeralds in the end. It is still Sonic. Um, but because of that, because it's like okay, the Zombots are deadly and they like they they convert people, but they're also basically indestructible. So once you are one, like you're a problem, but you're not going to die. And then when we fix it, you'll be mm. fine. Uh, and so they got to play all of the horrifying tropes straight. They got to do every single, like, person concealing a bite in the survivor hideout who then converts the entire, like, cabal of survivors, which is really harrowing, Mm -hmm. by the way. They get to do all that stuff, and then they get to fix it at the end, and everything's okay. And I liked that, because it couldn't cheat super hard. Like, it did still cheat at times. Like, it's kind of bullshit that that solution didn't work, like, five issues in, but whatever. The much more interesting version of the zombie survival storyline is a mass mind control plot, which they Mm. do in um, Superman and Lois for an episode where the the bad guy, mild spoiler, I won't say who, uh, basically controls, you know, most of a town into being, like, Kryptonian super soldiers. And, and Clark and, and Lois have to figure out how to stop that and, right. and make that unhappen. It's more interesting because you can't just kill people from a narrative standpoint. There are people and they can be saved. Yeah. And then you have a goal of undo it. Whereas with the zombie apocalypse, there's no there's no goal. The only, the only thing you can do in a zombie story is just run out the clock. But yeah. in stories where there's a mass mind control, you get the function of zombies or like getting chipped in She-Ra mm-hmm. is a great and much better version of this trope where you still have the like the weird red scare allegory kind of <laughs> hidden in there somewhere um, and the like oh this is just infecting more and more people and it's 
it's a tide that you can't stop, mm -hmm. but they're still in there, so you can't kill them, makes combat scenarios more interesting to write, yeah. and you actually have a win condition, so it's not just will the protagonist get eaten, it's can they stop and undo this. So uh, watch She-Ra Season 5. Yes, uh, and the and, other four seasons too. And the other four seasons too. Uh, and uh, don't uh, zombies are dumb. Read the Sonic They're stupid. IDW comics. But and read yes, the Sonic IDW I feel like, comics. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to give zombies yeah, a smidge of credit, they can be used as an interesting device to tell a story that is not specifically zombie focused, but where the zombie presents some sort of an obstacle. Because coming to mind, like two movies I really like that are zombie movies are Train to Busan and Shaun of the Dead, which are two wildly different genres, but both excellent yes. in their own specific regards. And um, I think what makes those stories work is that while the zombies are present and are very deeply an obstacle for the characters to overcome, uh, the focus is not placed on the zombie apocalypse scenario so much. Um, just to just to give zombies a smidge of credit here, because I don't want to disregard them entirely. But I, I do like I get what you guys are saying. The hopelessness of the the standard scenario is extremely frustrating. I don't personally love it either. <laughs> I will say that the thing with Train to Busan is that, like, while the set piece of the movie is extremely claustrophobic and purposefully, like, based on the exact mechanics of how do we navigate this specific situation, how do we get the kid out, how do we how do we survive, is, like, interesting. As soon as they get off the train, it's like, all right, what's your other plan? Like, what's the rest of your plan? Because the entire world is fucked, so... Sure, um, but, you know, I, I think that there is something to be said for maybe leaving some of the bit that plan up to guesswork i don't necessarily know if you know you need to hear everything about it but that's you know entirely fair um, zombie apocalypse stories are not categorically bad there's no rule that means they all have <laughs> to do this but the the very popular tropes of the zombie apocalypse create a world that does not feel internally consistent because the things that it, it essentially has a tendency and i think people who've watched the walking dead can back me up on this though oh, yeah. i have not um is there's a tendency to make things worse by any means necessary, whether that's making characters act oddly stupid and make poor decisions, or, uh, you know, oh, you thought this thing would hold, but it's not going to, because otherwise the plot won't happen. You know, you thought this place would be safe, but for various reasons we're gonna fuck it up. Like, there are interesting nightmare scenarios you can do, but most zombie apocalypses don't need to be interesting or clever or creative because they have an infinite supply of threats right outside the door. All they need to do is be like, oh, someone like sneezed on the gearbox and now the electric fence is down and we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the thing is like the implicit like underwriting of zombie stories is that the only way the plot can progress is for it to progress into a way that is worse. Yes. And it's Which just... is not, that's not like unovercomable. It's just... Mm, which, like, I really like Shaun of the Dead. I think mm -hmm. it's really funny. I hate the ending. I can't stand <laughs> the ending of that movie. I haven't seen it. How does it end? It Poorly. Does everyone die? <laughs> well, not everyone, well, not but a lot everyone. of people die. Yeah. It's just, mm, Shaun yeah. of the Dead's an interesting case because you kind of see them, I guess, spoilers for Shaun of the Dead, you see them play out the nightmare scenario for a minute, but obviously it's played for comedy because it's a Edgar Wright comedy. Um, mm. And you watch them lose a few members of their team trying to hunker down somewhere and survive, and the ending is essentially, like, the characters who have made it thus far at the sacrifice of one of their close friends gets pulled into like a truck of survivors and the whole world kind of settles into a state of like, hey, we've got this thing under control more or less. Government figured it out. Everyone's back to living their normal lives. And then one of the friends who got got is like a zombie living in someone's backyard shed, just hanging out, still playing games. Um, mm. And I, it's sort of like adjacent to, I mean, it's not nearly as comprehensively thought out as the World War Z ending, but it's kind of adjacent to it in that it's a different 
the world has just moved on and settled and figured out civilization again sort of thing. I guess yeah. the collapse wasn't quite as complete, but... I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. This is, like, one of the only apocalypse genres that I think... While it has interesting potential, and as mentioned, I did quite like how World War Z played out, and I like the way it's framed, a lot of it is just kind of like, it's lazy. It feels lazy, and it's just trying to screw over characters because there's really no expectation in mm. the long term that any of those guys are going to survive. Like, that's not how zombie apocalypses work. That's not... The bread and butter of the genre is like, how many more minutes can you buy yourself <laughs> or your loved ones? There's never right. the implication that there's a happy ending anywhere in the cards. And that annoys me that annoys me a lot and i think it undercuts the strength of the, of the storytelling and the potential strength of the genre because it ends up meaning that the characters just there's nothing to root for and a lot of them get really whingy about it they're just like oh everything sucks but i'm gonna screw over my loved ones anyway just to buy myself a couple more minutes and it's like oh yeah that makes sense <laughs> whatever anyway so yes, yes we don't have zombie apocalypse survival plans but luckily we don't need them because they're not real and also stupid <laughs> uh yeah and on that uh happy ending red are you ready to take us out with the outro i've got more thoughts on zombie apocalypse <laughs> that you're all gonna hear about time. tune in for the eventual detail diatribe oh, on this <laughs> i know but then i'd have to watch a bunch no, I'm, of them. I'm, I'm joking i'm thank joking thank you all so much for listening uh we'll be back in two weeks with another episode with the uh, told yeah with a guest uh so that'll be cool um we're also going to be back uh as usual on fridays with uh videos so check those out we're we're kind of like there was a hump there where it was a lot of like non-standard videos in a row but we're sort of back on yeah track. we had a couple detailed diatribes we had the uh the one marvelous scene two, uh, uh we had the two million musical one musical scene and yeah. then the two yeah. million video but yes we're, we're basically back on track for for more regularly scheduled content um i think that's about all our bases covered again yep. check out the recommendations we said in the middle of the video whatever they were and until next time i've been red i've been blue this has been a very lengthy screed about why a zombie apocalypse is fucking suck i hope we're not too far over time <laughs> and an overly sarcastic podcast thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the overly sarcastic podcast We'll be back on October 5th with another thrilling installment, but if you miss us before then, be sure to check out Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube. Got a question for the pod? Head over to Ask OS Pod on Discord for a chance for your question to be featured in a future episode. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, and if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron. Links to all that and more can be found in the show notes below.